You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Craig, and I'm one of the pastors here at Grace Church, and I want to join my voice with the others and say thank you for being here. Uh, You know, since we've uh, done services online, we've made some adjustments to our services. And one thing that we have done is we've completely cut out the pastoral prayer. When we meet live, normally uh, at the end of our singing time, uh, one of the pastors leads in a pastoral prayer. And that prayer is uh, addressed to the Lord, but uh, addressing an issue perhaps uh, in our church, perhaps in our city. Sometimes we pray for another church, uh, another nation, or sometimes we pray for issues that, uh, that affect our, our nation or our world. And so for today, I'd like to reinstitute uh, the pastoral prayer at this time in our service. And I would like to lead us in a prayer of lament. Uh, this is an appropriate expression before the Lord today because we want to pray a prayer of lament uh, given the recent circumstances in our nation, in particular uh, the deaths of Ahmad Arbery and George Floyd, which have just been absolutely uh, devastating as we've watched what has gone on. And uh, the appropriate attitude before the Lord is certainly to cry out for justice, um, certainly to pray for change, but it's also to lament and to grieve for families and friends who have lost loved ones, and for all who are affected by the evil of racism, which kind of runs as an undercurrent in our country, but uh, many experience this regularly. Many others are, live somewhat unaware, except at times like this, when it raises, rears its ugly, evil head, and it's, uh, it's on display for all. And this is just a time for us to grieve. So I'm going to read a prayer, actually, um, written by a black Baptist pastor named Reverend Rivers. Um, the sad thing about this prayer is that it is one he wrote a number of years ago to use in lament, and it's called a prayer of lament for those who cannot breathe. And the sad thing is that we're praying it again uh, with little change uh, since it was originally used in corporate worship. But let's cry out to the Lord this morning and ask for his mercy. A prayer of lament for those who cannot breathe. Holy God, a cloud of grief hangs heavy over our heads, and we feel like we cannot breathe. So give us the strength to pray. We raise our hands toward the sky, and we lift our eyes to the hills, which is where our help comes from. Lord, when the names of people who have been choked, shot, and assaulted is too many to count. We know that not one soul has been forgotten by mothers and fathers, sisters and brothers, cousins and friends. They remember laughs and smiles, dreams and struggles, talents And personalities. Now these men and women are gone. Father, how long must we listen to the cries 
and screams as blood stains the sidewalk. How many videos must we watch before we begin to see a change? Help us, God. Help us. Help the people of Minnesota. Help our nation. Help us examine ourselves. Help those of us who are sad and angry not to let these deaths be in vain. We do not pray for vengeance, but we do thirst for justice. We hope for healing between neighbors and officers called to protect and serve. We long for the day when young men will no longer will live long enough to be old men and parents will not have to say goodbye too soon. Our hope is in you, God. Deliver us from our fears. O God, come quickly to help us. O Lord, come quickly to save us. In the name of the one who came that we might have life and have life more abundantly. Amen and amen. Well, today, I'm going to transition to the sermon. And let you know, today we are wrapping up the book of Daniel. So I'm going to cover chapters 11 and 12 because it's a single vision and it doesn't really make sense to take a single vision and divide it up into two sermons. We've been going a chapter at a time, but I'm going to do two today as we look at the struggle and the hope that is represented in these chapters. Uh, The sermon is called Suffering Now, But Glory Forever. And so it's a, it's a passage that certainly uh, reveals a great deal of uh, catastrophic, apocalyptic suffering. And yet it also gives us a future, a vision of a glorious future that the Lord has awaiting his people. I want to start by sharing a story with you. It's, it's a story that is uh, told by... Uh, a comedian named Tim Hawkins, and he describes a situation in his book, a, a true theological treatise called The Diary of a Jack Wagon. And in the book, he tells the story of performing and at the end of the performance being asked for autographs and the first lady in line wanting an autograph on some piece of merchandise asks for him to put his favorite verse on the merchandise. And uh, so this is, here, this is what he writes in his book. He says to the lady, I'm sure, no problem. Well, he writes, my favorite Bible verse is Psalm 34, 8, which says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Happy are those who take refuge in him. But for whatever reason that night, I blanked. I totally forgot the verse. I could remember it was somewhere in Psalms, but the line in the hallway of people looking for autographs was getting longer, so I figured I just needed to pick a verse and let it ride. I mean, how bad could it be? The whole Bible, and especially the book of Psalms, should be a safe place to do some guesswork. 
This is Psalms for the love of David. So I just picked, randomly, picked Psalm 38, 7 out of thin air. And like an idiot, I signed every piece of merchandise that night with the same verse. Tim Hawkins, Psalm 38, 7, hope you enjoyed the show. Well, I was driving home that night and I suddenly felt the need to pray. It was a sinking feeling. Oh, Lord, I hope that was a good verse. Oh, Lord, could you change the scripture if it's not a good verse just for one night? Well, the Lord did not answer my prayer. I got home and looked up Psalm 38, 7, and to my horror, in the King James Version, it read, Lo, I have a painful disease in my loins. There are like a billion verses in the Bible, and I chose that one. I signed it a hundred times, and then I sent it out. My own little mission field, go, take the world, the word, to the world, build schools and hospitals, and don't forget my loin disease. Now, that story is funny. Well, I don't know if you think it's funny. I'm in an empty room, and so I have no idea if you think it's funny or not. But if you do, that story is funny for this reason. A favorite verse or a life verse is supposed to be a scripture verse that strengthens you in life. Now, we know that all the Bible is inspired, but that doesn't mean that all of the Bible is equally applicable to strengthen us in our daily walk with Christ. As a matter of fact, it's possible to not just read a verse like that and wonder, what do I do with that? It's possible to read an entire chapter of the Bible and come away saying, how is that relevant for me today? And I want to tell you that the chapter, the first chapter we're looking at today is absolutely that kind of chapter. Chapter 11 of Daniel, you step back, it's long, and you go, what was that all about? Because this is a chapter that talks about the back and forth battles of the Ptolemies and the Seleucids in the 4th, 3rd, and 2nd century BC. God's people are in the periphery of the discussion. Now, before you stop uh, watching right now on YouTube or Facebook, however you're watching this, before you stop, uh, let me let you know that I'm going to make points from this passage. I'm going to kind of summarize the passage and make points to show how it is relevant to us. But on first reading, it's hard to see how a history passage could really mean that much to us. But the key to understanding it is the context. It's history for us, but for Daniel, it wasn't history. For Daniel, it was a prophetic uh, passage of events, a vision, a prophetic vision of events that were yet to come. If you remember from our study last week in chapter 10, we we get the context there because that was the setup for this vision. Daniel had been mourning. He had been mourning for three weeks. He was praying and he was fasting and he was crying out to God because he was deeply grieved and troubled. Here's what had happened. After 70 years in captivity in Babylon, God had freed his people and they had returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And they get going, but they 
instantly uh, experience opposition and persecution, and they just stop the project. They just halt it and leave it hanging. And so the people there in Jerusalem are disappointed. I mean, they've gone to rebuild the temple so that God would restore the glory uh, to his people in Jerusalem, and the whole thing is on hold. And so Daniel and the people back in Babylon are equally discouraged. I mean, what's going on? This is confusing. Why, why if, would God release us and then not enable us to rebuild the city, rebuild the temple? And so he is praying. And as he is praying, God sends an angel to him and comforts him and strengthens him and then gives him this vision. And so this vision is what is to come. And in some way, it provides hope to Daniel. So the way I'm going to handle this, I'm going to just sort of summarize sections and say what's going on and then drop into particular verses to explain what is happening. Well, the vision in chapter 11, it parallels the vision that we read back in chapter 8. And it shows that what's coming after Babylon's rule, when the people are in captivity there, is that Persia will come on the scene and Persia will rule. After Persia rules for a while, then Alexander the Great will be raised up in Greece, and he will rise quickly, and he will take over uh, essentially what was the then known world. Uh, But he will die at a young age. He will die uh, like in his early 30s, and he had no uh, he had had no children, no heirs to pass on his rule in the kingdom. And so, what he does is he passes it on to four generals. That's mentioned in verse four of the chapter that he gives it to four generals. Now, two of those generals established the kingdom of the Ptolemies in Egypt and the kingdom of the Seleucids in Syria and Babylon. And this passage, the verses 5 through 35 in this chapter, chapter 11, are about the ongoing battle between the kingdoms of the north, the Seleucids, and the kingdoms of the south, uh, the Ptolemies, and their battle. Um, It's predictive prophecy, and it reveals with such accuracy what happens in the 3rd and the 2nd century that many scholars say this has to have been recorded after the events. No one could have known ahead of time this kind of specificity of what would be going on. It's written with a vision for the future, though. So that's, it's not history. It was given ahead of time, divinely given through vision to Daniel, so that his people would be uh, prepared for when the things uh, that they were to experience did materialize as first spoken of in this chapter. So in verses 5 through verse 20, there are detailed comments about 13 of the 16 rulers in these two kingdoms from 322 B.C. to 163 B.C. So 13 different rulers and how they jockeyed for position and battled one another, that's all uh, described in verses 5 through 20. And they represent this sort of endless struggle, this endless struggle of political conflict and war Uh, which never reaches a conclusion. Nations driven by power and greed uh, to battle one another, striving after man's will and not God's will. And ultimately, the nation's crumbling. That's what happens. That's what this shows in history, that one jockeys for position and then another and then another, but ultimately they crumble. 
I mean, case in point, when was the last time you heard recently in the news, in your news feed, on social media, on, uh, you know, the, the cable news channel, when was the last time you heard about the fierce, powerful Seleucids? Been a while. So it just shows that each nation rises and falls. But if we step back, we see that God is the one who oversees all of history. He can tell what's going to happen before it happens, which is what he does here with Daniel. Uh, The history was given to him so that leaders uh, in the future generations would be able to be prepared for the persecution that the Jews would endure. And that's revealed later in the chapter. So, If God is in charge of history, if God says what's going to happen ahead of time, that doesn't mean that we just give up, that we don't have a part to play, that we don't advocate for righteousness, that we don't stand up against injustice, that we just say whatever's going to happen is going to happen. It doesn't mean that at all. But it does mean that when times are uncertain, when there is suffering, when there is national or worldwide turmoil, we don't fix our hope in a political power. We don't fix our hope in a political leader. We fix our hope in God Almighty, that he watches out after his people and that he is the one who is acting both behind the scenes to orchestrate uh, his will for his people. So it is a warning against rooting our hope in a political power but ultimately fixing our hope in Christ. Now, when we get to chapter 21, I'm sorry, verse 21 through verse 35, it focuses on a single leader. And this single leader is our old friend, or I should say our old enemy, Antiochus IV, Antiochus Epiphanes. And we read about him in chapter 8. If you heard that sermon, then you may remember that he was the ruler in the second century B.C., who was trying to ensure that everyone under his power was adopting Greek uh, views, Greek principles, Greek uh, beliefs, Greek gods, and Greek practices. And so he persecuted the Jewish people uh, around Jerusalem and sought to uh, sort of snuff out any distinctives that they would have. So for instance, he made circumcision illegal, the sign of the covenant. He made that illegal upon the penalty of death. Another thing he did was he removed the sacrifices from Israel and he no longer allowed them to offer their sacrifices. And instead his forces came in and at the temple of almighty God, they offered pigs, unclean animals, pigs as sacrifices. And then in what is called the abomination, he uh, took a statue of Zeus and put it in the Holy of Holies, the very dwelling place of Yahweh Almighty. So he was the one who desecrated the temple. And we read about him again. We see this in verses 30 and 31. So in verse 30, it says, For ships of Kittim shall come against him. This is speaking about Antiochus. Uh, He's resisted by Roman rule here as he's trying to invade Egypt. They will come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw, and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the Holy Covenant. That's the people of God. This is exactly what happened. He was going to take Egypt. He was stopped by the Romans, and he turned back in a rage and unleashed persecution on God's people. 
It says, he shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the Holy Covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. That is the statue of Zeus. So all of this happens. And there, that we, again, this is in chapter 8 as well. The passage warns also that some people would actually be seduced by his Hellenization, his desire for Greek culture to uh, invade God's people and their culture. So verse 32, he shall seduce and flatter those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. So if God is giving this prediction hundreds of years before it actually happens, you can see how that would strengthen God's people in the time of persecution when they see this Antiochus raised up and when he is doing the very thing spoken of here. And when you see some people actually embracing his cultural philosophy and turning away from God, and yet the charge is for others to be faithful and take action, as it says. You can see how God revealing the future ahead of time, God giving history ahead of time, it brings a foundation into his people's lives, a solid foundation of confidence that God is sovereign. Well, Antiochus, he called himself Epiphanes, which means God manifest. That's what he referred to himself as, the manifestation of God himself. And Antiochus really, in the Bible, likely foreshadows another one who would claim to be God later in time, uh, known as the Antichrist, who is referred to in the New Testament. Okay, in verses 36 through 45, we get a different king. So five Uh, Verses 5 through 20 is the battle of north and south. 21 through 35 is the story again of Antiochus and his battle uh, with the southern kingdom of Egypt. And then in uh, verse 36, we get a different king. Verse 36 says, And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god. This appears to be an altogether different king. As a matter of fact, in a few verses, it says he's not one of the kings of the north. He's not a king of the south, but he is another king who claims to control like God. So who is this? Many scholars think that this is an Antiochus-like figure, but who's a future figure. In other words, when they describe the death of this new king, this different king, it doesn't really map on to the death of Antiochus. So it seems to be a different king that's being talked about. Verse 45 says, he shall pitch uh, his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain, yet he shall come to his end and none with none to help him. So it speaks that he will just kind of die and come to his end. And then the next thing we read about at the beginning of 12 is that there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there has been a nation till that time. So it sounds like an unusual, unprecedented time of persecution that's sort of tied to this individual. So some people believe that he represents the Antichrist. So you have this Antiochus, and then he's sort of a foreshadowing 
of a, of, a, of a great leader that would defy God and persecute his people that comes at the end of the age. Some people believe that's what he is. We're not sure, but this king, or I'm not sure, uh, plenty of people tell you they're sure, but this king is one who will ultimately die like all the others. Now, when we get to chapter 12, we see something so Uh, expected, so natural. After the vision of chapter 11 of the battling of nations, after the concluding part about the severe suffering of God's people, it's not a surprise that in verses 5 through the end of the book, 5 through 13 in chapter 12, we get two questions raised. So one is raised by someone in the vision, Daniel sees this person in the vision, who asks in verse 6, asks the messenger, how long shall it be till the end of these wonders? How long shall it be? And the response is that the angel says it shall be time, times, and half a time. So many have said, well, that means three and a half. Time is one, times is two, half a time is half, and that gives us the number three and a half. So Daniel responds, that doesn't evidently clear it up for him, and he responds in verse 8, what shall be the outcome of these things? And then we're given another number, or actually two other numbers, to explain when these things will happen. Uh, He's told, first of all, that there will be 1,290 days from the abomination. So from the abomination, 1,290 days. 1,290 days, uh, verse 11, is uh, roughly three and a half years. So that's similar to the time, times, and half a time. Uh, and so is, what is the abomination? Is that, is that number three and a half years? Is it figurative? Is it literal? Is it from the time of Antiochus? Or is it from the future Antichrist? Well, therein lies plenty of debate. Uh, I'm not sure what exactly that time is because then another time is given. And it says also, uh, blessed is he who waits, in verse 12, and arrives at the 1,335 days. So that's like 45 days past the 1,290 days. So when will this all happen? Well, there'll be a time of three and a half. There'll be a time of 1,290 days. Oh, and then there'll be 45 days past that that God's people will need to endure. What is clear in the passage is that the suffering is limited and that the suffering is limited by God. God knows exactly how long this time of intense suffering will go on. He knows where it is all going. He knows what will happen when God's people gets there. And he's also clear about what Daniel and the people of God are supposed to do. The last verse, after all of this frightening, you know, intense suffering, world wars, you know, practically. At the end of this, the message of Daniel is so plain. Verse 13, but go your way until the end. Hey, here's visions and times and Daniel, you don't understand it all. Just know it's super intense, but hey, just go your way until the end, the angel says, and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of days. What's he saying to Daniel? There's some clear things here. So again, some of the times, uh, maybe we don't know exactly when that all occurs, but we know it's limited and we know it's under the control of the Lord. That's the important thing. And secondly, we know what we're supposed to do, not live a life of speculating, putting together an apocalyptic puzzle, 
but get on with your life. That's what he tells Daniel. Go your way until the end. Persevere. Stay faithful. Live out your calling. Whatever it is you are called to do by God, continue in that, trusting him that he is faithful and he will bring all things to an end in his time. Do what we are called to do. Serve Christ faithfully. Extend his kingdom in all of the places that he has placed us. You know, it'd be a lot easier just to speculate and come up with a chart and figure everything, figure the puzzle out to our satisfaction. That might feel nice and neat. What is more difficult is to say when all hell is breaking loose and when life is difficult and when we're called to a season of darkness in our lives or nationally or internationally as the apocalypse comes in the the Bible, as, as time comes to an end, we're called to be faithful in that, to keep our eyes on the Lord, to trust him and to do what he's called us to do. That's much more difficult. You know, John Wesley, who was uh, an 18th century evangelist uh, traveling, he was a circuit writer and preacher. Uh, One day someone came up to John Wesley and said to him, if you knew that Jesus was returning at noon tomorrow, what would you do? And the story goes that Wesley pulled out his diary, his, his, you know, where he kept his appointments, his log, his calendar, and he showed him what responsibilities and requirements, appointments he had for the rest of the day. And he showed him what he had the next day until noon. And he said, that's what I would do if I knew Jesus was coming at noon tomorrow. What was the point of the illustration? Well, the point of what he was saying is, I'm living my life faithfully to what God's called me to do. And when the Lord returns, the Lord returns. May he find us faithful when he returns. That's a big takeaway point from the end of the story here. That evil does all that it can. Evil does its worst work against God's people. And at the end, this is what he tells Daniel, you shall rest and you shall stand in your allotted place at the end of days. Evil will do all that it can, but at the end of the story, God's people will stand. And that's his promise to us today. Well, how can Daniel keep going when he's told, how can he just say continue on until the end faithfully when he's told of such horrific suffering, when these visions have been overwhelming throughout the book? How can he continue on when he's seen these things of apocalyptic proportions that have taken the wind out of him and overwhelmed him at various points he's passed out in this book, just seeing these, these visions of what is to come? How can he keep going? Well, I skipped the beginning of chapter 12 because that is the answer. We can only keep going because we know that no matter how dark things become, one day the curse will be completely reversed. One day, all suffering, all injustice, all pain, all sorrow, all death, all tribulation in every way will be removed and God will make all things new. This is what always, this is always the big takeaway in apocalyptic literature. The big takeaway is always, it's challenging now, but look to eternity and the faithfulness of God. And a vision of that day gives strength for this day. And that's exactly what they tell Daniel, the the vision, uh, what, what the angel tells Daniel in this passage. See, what we find out in the Bible is that the Bible is the story of a perfect creation, 
God makes a perfect creation for Adam and Eve, but they rebel against him and fall. And everything on the planet is affected by that. We live in a broken world. It's so obvious as we prayed the prayer of lament. Is it not obvious? Take one issue. Well, the two big issues right now in the culture, right? Health and vulnerability to our health with the COVID-19 pandemic. And then secondly, the prayer of lament that we prayed uh, for the, the evil of racism, which does not treat other individuals as image bearers of God to be treated with dignity and value, but treats them as uh, lesser than and worthless, takes advantage or even kills, as we prayed um, the situation we prayed about earlier. So there's a, we live in a fallen world, and so Jesus comes to redeem the fallen world. He's the second Adam that comes to restore everything that was lost by the first Adam. He gives his life on the cross. He takes our sins and dies in our place, and he's raised after three days. And, and he does so to defeat the power of sin and death, to the reverse the curse of all the suffering that happens. He does this to give new life, to make all things new. And then those who trust him and meet him, he purifies us throughout our lives with blessings and sufferings, knowing that one day we will be resurrected for eternal life. And that's what the beginning of chapter 12 reveals. So go back. How can Daniel go your way until the end? Verse 13, look at verse 1. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. What kind of deliverance? Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever." What does he say? He says that, it, it, that this book is spoken of un, you know, in, indescribable suffering, but there's an unbelievable deliverance that's coming for those whose name is written in God's book. How encouraging is that to Daniel and his people? That as they have been oppressed throughout the years, in the eyes of their oppressors, God's people are nameless. God's people are worthless, but they are known And they are remembered by God, written in his book. And one day, from the sleep of dust, from their death, he will resurrect them into everlasting life. They will be vindicated through resurrection. Now, this is one of the only references to the resurrection in all of the Old Testament. It's one of the only references. And so it's found in Daniel. It's so important to his story that there will be a resurrection. That is the hope. That's how Daniel can keep going. That's how Daniel Daniel could download these visions of incredible suffering and yet have hope for the future because he knows that there will be an awakening to glory. The glory we were created for, we will be resurrected to shine in the brightness of the sky above. That's figurative, but it's it's a picture of us shining with the brightness and the glory of God, reflecting the very glory of God as we are in his presence for all eternity, reflecting his blazing perfection. 
and light and a new heavens and a new earth where there is no more suffering and there is total and complete flourishing of all creation for eternity. We're raised to experience everlasting life, verse 2, where all things are new, where there is the loss of loss, where all sorrow is gone, where in this life there are broken hopes and dreams, but at the resurrection all things will be made new. C.S. Lewis said at one point that this life is only the cover and the title page, but we await, he said, chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Now, he's not saying this life doesn't matter at all, but he's just saying that this life is the introduction to experiencing life in a new heavens and new earth, the way life was intended to be experienced. That's what the kingdom of God is. The kingdom of God is life the way God intends it to be experienced under his rule. And that's what awaits us, always growing better as the days go on. This, is, this resurrection into everlasting life is a, is a trading of the old and an embracing of the new in the new heavens and new earth. I read some comments about the difference in the old and the new uh, written by Albert Crawford in notes of, on, on his systematic theology. And this is what he said. The old is everything that is sinful, inadequate, covered with the dust of death and is passing away. The old is obsolete. It's synonymous. It's synonyms are as many as the words that describe sin and evil. Its synonyms are death, decay, corruption, worn out, outdated, powerless, condemned, inadequate, boring, hopeless, spoiled, darkness, depression, worthless, ugly, and so on. That's the old life. He says, we have grown so used to this oldness that we take it for granted. We expect things to wear out. We expect things to rust. We expect things to decay. We expect marriages to fail and children to rebel. We expect death. When we find something that is relatively stable, we hang on to it with desperation, only to find that it wears out and the first joys turn to dust. But deep in our inner being, we know that it should not be this way. We are creatures of God in his image and likeness. We know that we were created for him and that people and things should never get old. But this knowledge has to battle against the appearances all day, every day. It's difficult for us to think of real and eternal newness. I suppose that we could begin by reversing all the words that describe the old, but the truth is greater than such a reversal. The old is corruption, decay, and death, but the new is more than the opposite of these words. The new is a much richer concept. The new is everything that God has made real, good, and powerful. It is everything that has a good future. It will never get old, but will get newer every day for all eternity. It continues to be fresh and exciting every day. It cannot be touched by the old, the ugly, and the boring. It will never die. It has the nature of life, vivacity, joy, fulfillment, success, prosperity, peace, and blessing. It has the moral character of holiness, righteousness, purity, and goodness. It can never spoil, perish, or fade. God himself is new. 
He is making all things new. And that is the hope that we find in Daniel, that there is a resurrection to everlasting life for those whose names are written in his book. Friend, you may not know Jesus Christ. You may not be a Christian. Perhaps you're searching uh, for faith, for life, for meaning. You want to know the truth. Listen, here is the truth, that there is suffering in this life, and it will continue. And God does intervene and alleviate suffering. God does give blessing. There is fruitfulness in this life as well. But we will never know a pain-free, suffering-free life until the return of Jesus, where those who have believed in him, those who have submitted our lives to his lordship, those who have trusted his death and resurrection for us and believed in him, received the gift of eternal life and followed him. Only those will be resurrected to everlasting life where, G- where Jesus says, I am making all things new, a newness we can't even imagine. And the reality is when we have a vision for that newness, that kingdom come, we pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It is a vision of the way God intended things to be that empowers us to pray and to labor and serve for those things to become real in our lives today. But it all starts with trusting Christ and individually becoming new on the inside and joining his kingdom mission to reverse the curse and see him make all things new on planet Earth, ultimately consummated in his return. Here's the point of it all. We can keep going through suffering today because we know he will make all things new tomorrow. We can keep going through suffering today because we know he will make all things new tomorrow. Suffering now, but glory forever. This isn't to gut the hope of life change now because God does bring life change now. Our lives are radically changed. He does uh, change relationships. He does heal people. He does remove sin from our lives and impart his holiness to us. He does change us, but it will never be life ultimately as it's meant to be lived until he returns. And so in the meantime, we take the words to Daniel, go your way till the end. By God's grace, by God's spirit, may we stay faithful to trust him, to trust his good news, to share that good news with others. May we stay faithful to follow him by grace until he returns, until the end. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.